Ephesians 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. I'm just going to pray quick as well. Father God, we are extremely grateful for the opportunity to gather, uh, to gather, to yeah, yeah, to gather today around your word as a group of believers who are eager to learn about you, who are eager to grow in you. And Father, there are some passages that may be a little bit difficult. Maybe this is one of them. And I just pray that you'd give us understanding today that uh, anything that's coming in that would distract us or uh, just force us to try and look at a passage in a certain way, Lord, that uh, you'd help us to disregard that and to see what your word is for what it really is, Lord. We thank you. And in your name we pray. Amen. So, there's obviously a lot going on in this passage. Virtually every big concept you could think of, be it, you know, redemption, predestined, adoption, grace, forgiveness, wisdom, hope, salvation, you know, it's all here. And so, in the little time I've got today, I'm going to do my best to touch on everything, but I'm not going to be able to go into any one topic with much depth. There's just way too much to look at. But, honestly, uh, this passage shouldn't actually be read with too much focus on one verse or one word anyways. And here's why. Verses 3 to 14 in the original Greek was actually one massive run-on sentence. It was one thought, and so it was meant to be read all at once. And this passage as a whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Almost more than any other passage in all of Scripture, this one really demonstrates for us just how loving God really is. And so as much as it is exploding with information, and it is, that's actually eclipsed or shadowed by how much it actually explodes in love. And so let's just get right to it. In verse 1 here, we find that Paul is the author of this book. And though it doesn't tell us exactly when he wrote it, experts in dating these letters say he probably wrote it a couple of years before writing 1 Timothy, while he was in prison. And as for who he wrote it to, well, you know, obviously he wrote it to the Ephesians, but who were they? Well, Acts 20, verse 21, has Paul talking to some Ephesian elders. 
reminding them that he had testified to both Jews and Greeks in Ephesus. And so it's a culturally mixed crowd. You got Jews and Gentiles. But this specific letter here seems to be a bit geared more directly towards speaking to Gentile believers and somewhat indirectly to Jewish ones. And I think that's probably due to the fact that a large chunk of this letter was written to help reinforce Gentile knowledge that they were in fact included in the kingdom and had equal status with Jewish believers in Christ. The church itself may have had a pretty good handle on not valuing people based on race, but the city of Ephesus at large, not so much. Basically, all of chapter 2 and half of chapter 3 talk about how Gentiles are included, and then half of chapter 4 talks about what real unity looks like. So solely based on content alone, when this is only a six-chapter book, you can see that racial division was a pretty big deal for Paul concerning Ephesus. And so that makes how Paul refers to his recipients in verse 1 quite intriguing. If you'll take a look with me, you'll see that he calls them saints. Now, I thought for years that saint was a special term used for only super spiritual people. You know, people who've performed miracles or brought hundreds to the faith in a single speech, something like that. But here, Paul refers to everyday Christians as saints. A whole group of believers, Jew and Gentile alike, who both still needed huge corrections and had a lot to learn about their faith. Paul used a single term to speak about both groups. And so already in just a greeting here, he's tipping his hand as to what he thinks about racial divisions. He's not a big fan. But what exactly is a saint? What does that term mean? Well, the word for saint comes from the word hegios, which essentially means holy, physically pure, and morally blameless. But Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on further to define what he means by calling them faithful in Christ Jesus. So we can expand Paul's greeting here. You could read it as to the holy, pure, morally blameless, and faithful people in Ephesus, may you have both grace and peace from the Father and Jesus. Now that, that's a pretty unifying, a pretty uplifting, encouraging way to greet someone. It's way better than just a dear Ephesians. And so Paul keeps these good feelings coming in verse 3. 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now I'm sure I lost some of you with that verse. I know that the NIV and the NASB at least, they say it quite differently than my ESV here says. And you know, that's fine. That may leave us with some questions, but regardless of how it's worded, they all have the same core message to give us. As believers in Christ, we have all been blessed, and that's present tense here. We are presently blessed with every single spiritual blessing available. There is nothing we lack. There is nothing spiritually good that our amazing God hasn't let us in on. And that is monumental. Because you and I and the Ephesians here, who are by nature objects of wrath, as it says in uh, chapter 2, verse 3, we are now people who've literally been given every single spiritual blessing in the book. It's a full 180 degree turnaround. And now what are these blessings you may ask? Well, spoiler alert, 
It's everything we're going to be reading today, which is a really long and really incredible list. But the point is, God has given to us in Christ not just some blessings, or just enough that he could be considered generous, but in his extraordinary, over-the-top love, God has given us all the blessings. It's like hoping for a crumb and being given a bakery. It's incredibly humbling, and it's unreal to think he'd let us in on all that, but he did. And then something crucial to understand that's also going to come up in verse 4 and several verses after, and it's super, super crucial, is this notion of us. In 4 it says, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Well, who is the us exactly? Well, verse 3 says it's the us in Christ. 4 says us in him. 6 says us in the beloved and 11 refers to those in him. So all these verses, everything we're reading today applies only to those in Christ. Doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, strong or weak, so long as you are in Christ. And what is Christ, or Messiah, if you feel like getting your Hebrew on? What's that mean? Well, it isn't really Jesus' last name. Back in Matthew 16, 16, where Jesus asked the disciples who he is, Peter says, you are the Christ. Christ is a description or a title for the person who God anointed. The person who God handpicked and sent into the world, as it says in the slightly lesser known John 3.17, not to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So Christ is the title given to the person God sent to save the world. And now we have to ask, if this passage does apply only to those who are in Christ, then how does one come to be in Christ, in the world's Savior? Are you in him because of your choice, or because of some means outside your control? Well, verses 12 and 13 really help us out with that. Verse 12 says, So that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And then 13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. There's a when you heard in 13 there. And so that must mean that there is a time for becoming in Jesus. It isn't just a given before birth. And if there's any further doubts, chapter 2 verse 12 says that these holy and blameless Ephesian saints were once separated from Christ. And I'll just read it here for you. It says, Remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So in their lifetime, these Ephesians were once separated, but they aren't anymore. Now they're in Christ. So there must have been a point in time when that happened. And then we see that becoming in Jesus takes action on our part. 13 says you have to hear the gospel and believe in Jesus. And 12 says put your hope in Jesus. Salvation, it isn't just forced on you before birth whether you like it or not. 
It happens in your lifetime, and you have to choose to want it. You've got to hear the gospel and react by believing in Jesus and putting all your hope in him. That's how you become in Christ. You choose to believe and hope in him at some point in your life on earth. But it does say in verse 4 that the in Jesus group was chosen before the creation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. So what's that all about? It seems at first glance, at least, to be the exact opposite to what we just said. But look again, and you'll see it actually makes sense. God made a decision before he ever made the world that if people chose to have faith in Christ, he'd consider them holy and blameless. And I'll say that once more because it's quite important. God made a decision before he ever made the world that in the future, if people chose to have faith in Christ, he'd consider them holy and blameless. And here's a real-world example to maybe explain this a little bit better. Does anyone know the name Greg Boyd? Is that a bit familiar to anyone? No? Well, darn. But uh, he's the author of a book called Letters from a Skeptic. And it's a great book. I highly recommend it. Uh, Dan recommended it in our church. A bunch of us read it. So highly recommend it. But he puts it this way. Let's say I send out invitations to all your lovely folks to come to my house for a movie night. Right? Some of you choose to come. Some of you hum and haw to the last minute because, you know, that Tyson guy, just not sure about him. But eventually, you decide to come. Then once at my house, I have you all sit down and I put on The Princess Bride, greatest movie ever. You could say, I predestined you all to watch The Princess Bride. Now that's true, but only because you accepted my invitation to come. Likewise, in this verse here, you're only chosen to be holy and blameless if you accept Jesus' invitation to be in Him. That was the plan God had before he ever made the world. And that is an amazing reality. Because not only is it God choosing to love on us when he didn't have to, nowhere in scripture do we find that he's obligated to love us. He just does. But it's also him knowing beforehand that we would need saving. And it shows he already had a plan to save us. It's crazy. God knew we would turn our backs on him. He knew that we'd leave him even after he had splurged countless blessings on us. He loved us anyways. The closest worldly example I can think of would be us choosing to have kids and love on them. We all know they're going to be absolute little monsters at times. But we have kids anyways, and we bear everything they put us through, and we forgive them over and over again with the hopes that they might grow to love us back, and that we as parents might have a solid, loving relationship with them as adults. You know, we might try and do this with our own kids, you know, two, three, five people. But God lovingly knew before creation, he'd want to call every single human being holy and blameless. He wanted everyone to have the opportunity to be holy. Even the guy that you and I might think of as beyond saving. God wanted to give him the opportunity to be holy. So, God made the plan to send Christ into the world and made it so that all anyone had to do was the things we looked at in verses 12 and 13 and they'd be considered holy and blameless in his eyes. Really, really remarkable stuff. But what's even more amazing is verse 5. Beyond choosing those in Christ to be holy and blameless, it says that in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. 
So there's that us again. Alright, those in Jesus Christ. So not only has he given to those in Christ every blessing available, and made the decision beforehand to look at us as holy and blameless, but he has also decided to actually adopt us and make us his very own children. All Christians, worldwide, who have been reborn into a new person in Christ, God has said, I'm going to adopt you, so you're my kid, welcome to the family. You know, I mean, how much more loving can you get? We're only on verse 5, and, you know, already, God's blown our minds with his love. It's not enough that God would blot out our sins and call us holy and blameless. Say that, you know, you and me, we're okay now, catch you later. But God takes it a step further, because he's just got that much more love to give. He has predestined for those who choose to be in Jesus to adopt them as sons and daughters. It is automatic. No one made him do it or had to sway him to do it. He wanted to. God wants to adopt everyone as a son or daughter. And then what does all this lead to? What is the end result of all this? Verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the Beloved. Praise. That's the end result. Those in Jesus ought to praise God for his grace. And I mean, you know, doesn't that just make sense? Just like the verse says, all this is a grace. We don't deserve any of God's love. Look at the Ephesian track record here in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, which, I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, should look pretty similar to our own. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. We followed the ways of the world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience. And we all once lived like this, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. You know, that's me to a T. That's the Ephesian church, and that's everyone here, and that's everyone out in the world. We don't deserve God's love. We haven't earned it. Isaiah 64, 6 says, Even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags in his sight. We were at the furthest, most possible place away from God, buried in sin. His love, it is an undeserved grace. It is a free gift. And all we can and should want to do is praise him for it. Praise God for being so good to us inherently evil people. That's the right response. And now the first half of verse 7 explains, brief, explains briefly how Christ accomplished all these graces we now enjoy. It says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Through his blood. Not only did God give us all this love, but he went about it in the most self-sacrificial method the world has ever seen. God sent his Son, the Christ, into the world to shed his blood, to die, so that we might be redeemed. Now that ought to humble even the most prideful person. Just imagine, parents, sending your own child to die so a bunch of wicked people could live. But Christ died so that we could have a right relationship with God again. God sent his Son to die because even as sinners, he loved us. Romans 5.8 he loved you and me, and Christ was the only acceptable substitute. 
because he was the only one without sin. You know, it is, it is just barely touched on in this verse, but it is the crux of Christianity. It is only by grace through Christ and his death that our sins were forgiven. And all this in verses 7 to 9, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. You know, just when you think it can't get better, we read something like this. God has also given us an inside look into his will. Chapter 3, verses 4 and 5 say that it had been a mystery for generations. The Israelites, although they were God's chosen people, they didn't know God's will. By and large, they had no idea. But God sent Christ into the world to put his will into motion. Christ himself says in John 6:38 that he's come to do the will of him who sent me. Christ executes God's will. He is the embodiment of God's will in action. And as another act lover that another loving act of his, we get to see his will through Christ. And what is his will? Verse 10. A plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. Universal unity. And Paul talks about this in part with his comments in chapter 3, verse 6, stating that the mystery of Christ is that Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. But that is just a small, small part of it all. That's just unity between Jews and Gentiles. God has much, much bigger plans. His plan includes all things to be united with him. If you will, take a look with me at Colossians 1, verses 16 to 20. It's just a few pages over. Colossians 1, verses 16 to 20. And I'll read it for us. It says, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Christ aims not to unite just Jews and Gentiles, but literally everything. You know, I don't have to tell you this, but we live in a world where our governments are not taking their cues from God, where our workplaces and schools are not Christ-oriented. The world is in the hands of the evil one, and there are divisions everywhere. But Christ is going to unite all things to him. Nothing will exist that is outside of Christ. All people, powers, authorities, all human institutions, all heavenly things will be united in him. What heavenly things they're talking about? Gotta admit, I'm not sure. It's not specified here or in Colossians, but my best guess would be that it means angelic or spiritual beings, uh, people who've already passed away and are presently with Christ, and God himself physically united here with us on earth. Anything that exists be it heavenly or physical, will be united with him 
and Christ will be the head over everything in existence when the time is right. It's a future event. It hasn't happened yet, but it will come. That's the plan. But back to Paul's present times and place, he's dealing with mere racial divisions in Ephesus. So he goes on with a summary of just how Gentiles and Jews became united in Christ in verses 11 to 14. He says in 11 to 12 that in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Well, who is that we here? What crowd is Paul lumping himself in with, who first hoped in Christ and obtained that inheritance? Destruction. <laughs> who does Paul lump himself in with, who first hoped in Christ and obtained that inheritance? It's the Jews. They believe first because Christ came to the Jews first. Christ himself says in Matthew 15:24 that he's come to the lost sheep of Israel. He didn't come to the Gentiles. And so in hearing it first, logically speaking, the Jews had the first crack at believing. But 13, as we already looked at, says, you also, when you heard and believed in him, were sealed with the Spirit. You also is the Gentile group. They also have the sealing of the Spirit who in verse 14 now is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So now it's changed. Now it's our inheritance. Not just Jews or just Gentiles, both. Brought together and unified in Christ as one part of that grand master plan. Both have obtained an inheritance. And you know, it's, it's not specified what that inheritance is here, but you've got to know what's good. 1 Peter 1 verse 4 describes it as imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And you can look at Matthew chapter 5 at the Beatitudes for some examples of what it might be, but honestly, the best inheritance possible would simply be eternity with our perfectly loving God. Is that honestly not the best possible thing we could inherit after all we just read about how he lavishes his love on us? And by the way, that whole sealed with the promised Holy Spirit thing? Sealed comes the very fun to pronounce word sfragizo, which means to stamp for security or preservation, to attest ownership of. It's like writing your name on something that belongs to you so you can always prove ownership of it if someone else were to ever come and try and claim it. And for us as believers, that's the guarantee to our inheritance. It's the golden ticket God lovingly gave us to enter into eternity with him. So if you have the spirit today, you should feel quite secure and quite loved for. Because nobody can take it from you. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8, verses 38 to 39. You are guaranteed your salvation, your inheritance, your adoption, your holiness, forgiveness, all of it, so long as you remain in Christ. So we've covered a lot of ground today. And I know maybe your heads might be spinning with everything I have thrown at you, 
but I do have five lessons here to help us see some of the main points of this passage. So lesson number one. Every person on earth has the potential to be in Christ if they make the choice to believe and hope in him. Ephesians 1 verses 12 and 13. Every person on earth has the potential to be in Christ if they make the choice to believe and hope in him. Ephesians 1 verses 12 and 13. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter where you've come from, how much sin you have in your past. It doesn't matter your ancestry. It doesn't matter your social status. It doesn't matter anything. If you're a breathing, living person, you have the potential to be in Christ. You just got to make that choice. Lesson number two. God, for knowing we'd leave him and need saving, had a plan before he ever made the world to save us. Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5. God, foreknowing we'd leave him and need saving, had a plan before he ever made the world to save us. God didn't need a DeLorean to hop forward and back in time to see what would happen. God knew we would need saving. And he already had a plan to save us before we ever sinned. Really, really remarkable stuff. Number three. God shows us his love by calling us holy and blameless, adopting us, redeeming us, letting us in on his plans, giving us the spirit and an inheritance and any other spiritual blessing there is. And that's just the entire passage here. God shows us his love by calling us holy and blameless, adopting us, redeeming us, letting us in on his plans, giving us the spirit and an inheritance and any other spiritual blessing there is. God doesn't hold back when it comes to love. God wants to love us to the max. Everything he's got, he wants to give it to us. He's given us all the blessings. Number four, praise from us is the proper response for all God has done for us. And that comes up a number of times in this passage. Ephesians 1 verses 3, 6, 12, and 14. Praise is the proper response for all God's done for us. Ephesians 1 verses 3, 6, 12, and 14. Last one. Having the Spirit guarantees our inheritance with God in the future when His plan comes to fulfillment. You look at verses uh, 13 and 14 for that. Having the Spirit guarantees our inheritance with God in the future when His plan comes to fulfillment. Verses 13 and 14. 